Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. This weekend, four immigrants from Danbury, Connecticut, will be honored by nonprofit The American Dream, the New American Dream Foundation, that is. Coming up, Vice President Emanuela Palmares will join us to talk about why the nonprofit has worked to highlight the contributions of local immigrants each year. Is the American Dream a myth? Depends on who you ask. But one thing most of us can agree on, we all want to live a life where we're comfortable and healthy, where we can provide for our family, and if we have kids, ensure they can, when they become adults too, that they have a good life. But economists say it all depends on where you live, for one thing. Other factors that shouldn't be surprising include where you go to school, your childhood environment, and whether you've been able to earn a college degree. Now, do you believe in the American dream? Are you in a better place than your parents were at your age? You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter, at Where We Live. In a few minutes, we'll hear from an economist and a sociologist about the factors that encourage upward mobility. But first, a recent Pew study finds Generation X, rather, the people born after the mid-1960s and up to the mid-80s. This group is the only generation of households to recover what they lost during the Great Recession. For more, joining us by phone is Richard Fry, senior researcher at the Pew Research Center. Richard, welcome to the show. Good to be with you. I understand uh, it was the Gen Xers who bore the brunt of the Great Recession uh, in the beginning. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. The Gen Xers, those born under Pew definitions between 1965 and 1980, back sort of during the days of the, the housing peak, 2004 to 2007, they were sort of in their sort of middle years. And um, they, as they were building their wealth, they were acquiring houses. So they were buying houses at pretty high prices before the housing crash. Um, they took a lot of debt on to do it. For many American households, a lot of their wealth is in their house. And so Generation X, given their recent entry into the housing market, they were the ones that suffered the greatest declines in home equity, some of them being foreclosed on. And percentage-wise, they took, for the typical median wealth level, they took the largest decline, again, largely because they were overly heavily involved in the housing market. And especially if they bought homes closer to when that bubble burst, uh, a lot of money put into a home when you buy, but not a lot of time to uh, build up that equity, as you mentioned. Yes. Yeah. They were, again, highly leveraged. They had a lot of debt relative to the value of their homes. And leverage works really good when home, home prices are rising. But at least nationally in many housing markets, um, home prices fell. And so for some of them, their stakes got wiped out. Some of them were underwater. Some of them were foreclosed on. And so, yeah, in terms of sort of in terms of wealth, um, it was particularly Generation X um, households that were hit hard um, by the, the downturn. Now, how did that compare to, say, the baby boomer, boomer generation or even uh, the millennials? Okay. So, again, sticking with wealth, 
to put some numbers on it in terms of the hit they took. These are Federal Reserve data from 2007 to 2010. The typical wealth level, again, the median for Gen Xers, they fell about 38%. But for the boomer, boomers, their sort of typical wealth level fell about 26%. Now, for the millennials, you got to remember, the oldest millennial today is 37 years old. So, Back, if we go all the way back to 2007, the millennials were, were very young, okay? And so I don't want to say that they weren't hit by the Great Recession. They were in terms of the labor market, in terms of finding work and in terms of the jobs they could get. But they were very young. All young adult households, they have very little wealth. They had very little wealth back then, and so they didn't have much to lose. They were just starting to build um, their nest eggs. And so when you actually look at the Federal Reserve figures, again, this, is, this isn't really – the wealth levels were so low that actually they didn't – so measurement-wise, they didn't lose anything. But again, it's because they had very small nest eggs to begin with. So in terms of wealth, they weren't affected much. There's also the silent generation. Uh, describe who they are and how they were hit by the recession. Okay. So the silent generation, this is, again, a common um, label for the generation um, before the boomers. They were born um, from 1928 to 1945. So uh, get my age right. Back in 2007, sort of this, they would have been, say, ages 62 to 79. So they were sort of already entering into um, sort of the retirement period. Many of them were retired. And for example, their wealth levels back in 2007, according to the Fed data, their typical household wealth was about 268000 by 2010, it was about 231000 So they took about a 14% drop in their wealth levels. So they were hit, but not as hard as um, younger generations. And again, it's because they had more of their assets away from housing. They were more into financial assets, less into housing. And so, again, typically, the Fed data sort of show is that households that had most of their wealth in housing took the biggest hit. For example, households out west also took a bigger hit because they had more of their wealth in housing. I'm talking with Richard Fry, senior researcher at the Pew Research Center. Now, Richard, you uh, did an analysis of, again, Generation X and where they stand today, and they've recovered pretty well. Why is that? Well, I want to be careful. They have recovered. They've gotten back their wealth levels, according to the Fed data in 2016, the latest data available. Their wealth levels are back above where they were in 2007. And that's not true for the boomers and the silent generation. Several things have um, occurred that have basically, with rising asset prices, both home prices in many housing markets have recovered to where um, they were back in 2004, 2005. That, again, that varies from housing market to housing market. As far as the stock market, that's now sort of at record highs, and that's recovered. But the key thing, I think, for Generation X is keep in mind, they were, they were young. They're still young. The oldest Gen Xer is um, still only 50 three years of age. And so they are, there's, retirement really is not an issue for them. And they've gotten older and they're starting to hit their peak earning years. And so that with higher, higher earnings, higher income, that allows you to save more. And so what we see, both in terms of their housing wealth, their home equity is back above where it once was, but also their financial assets 
are also um, back above where they were. So part of it is, is just sort of where they are in the life cycle is that they're still approaching their peak earnings years, whereas the boomers and the silence, they're getting older. Some of their earnings and the, their earners in the household are starting to leave the labor market as well. Since they're older, they're starting to draw down their wealth, use their nest eggs. And so um, boomers and silence have not backed to where they were in 2007. Gen X is. Now, there's one qualifier, though. Okay. Okay. So the oldest Gen Xer is now 53 years of age. Well, what's their typical wealth level? Their typical total wealth level is about 84,000. So they've recovered, but one can still ask, are they where they need to be as they start to approach the retirement years? And again, that's, that's a, uh, a difficult question to ask, but I think some people would say, given the fact that they don't even have six, dig- six digits, you know, even $100,000 sort of squirreled away, that they are probably not well prepared for what's coming for them. Mm-hmm. Um, but I won't, I won't get into sort of whether they're ill-prepared or not, but that's, they only have about, their typical wealth level is about $84,000, according to the Fed figures. Now, you mentioned nest eggs, and when we talk about the baby boomers and older Americans, uh, they did see a hit to their retirement. Some of them even uh, re- had to put off retirement because of uh, the Great Recession, and you, as you mentioned, they have yet to recover what they lost. That's correct. And I think, you know, the, the, again, for the boomers now, as of 2016, their typical wealth level, again, a lot of it is in their homes. It's not in sort of liquid financial assets, but it's about 184000 according to the Fed figures. Again, there are concerns as to sort of particularly for the, for the boomers about, you know, sort of whether they're prepared. And remember, um, they're getting older now, um, where the oldest boomer is now 72 years of age. And so they're Many of them are beyond their peak earnings years. Some of them are wanting to leave the labor market. And clearly, there are concerns about sort of how well the boomers are going to be prepared for their retirement years. Richard Fry, again, is senior researcher at the Pew Research Center. We're going to tweet out a link uh, to uh, Pew's analysis of Generation X. Uh, you can find us at where we live. Richard, thank you for joining us. We appreciate it. You're very welcome. Thank you. This is where we live. Today, we're talking about whether the idea of the American dream is really attainable, especially given the growing wealth and income inequality gap in the U.S. Now, how stable do you see your future or your children's future? We want to hear from you. Join our conversation, 860-275-7266. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter, at where we live. Uh, to, to talk more about this, joining us now um, from NPR's headquarters in Washington, D.C., is John Latiri. He's co-founder and president of the Economic Innovation Group. John, welcome to the show. Great to be with you. Also with us uh, from uh, on the phone is Michael Hout, professor of sociology at New York University. Michael, welcome to where we live. Good morning, Lucy. Thanks for be- having me on. So I started the show talking about the so-called American dream. I wanted to ask both of you how how this idea is defined today. I'll start with you, John. What is the American dream today? Well, I, th- I think the American dream uh, is what it has always been, which is the idea that if you work hard and if you play by the rules, that you have a great shot of rising beyond your starting point in life in this country, that this is a land of opportunity. And uh, and that's certainly true for millions of Americans, but I think we know better today than we ever have that your zip code has a lot to say about your access to the American dream. And that's something that's become more challenging in the wake of the Great Recession and the uneven recovery. As, as we know more about the impact that place has on people's lives, we can see the fault lines in terms of people's access nationwide to uh, economic prosperity and opportunity. And we, we see some factors that frankly seem arbitrary uh, that challenge our notion of this being 
broadly a land of opportunity for everybody. Mm. When you say the the factors that are arbitrary, uh, tell us more about that. Well, the, it's the lottery of birth. The, you, you don't choose your zip code of birth, and you don't choose, for the most part, where you grow up. And yet we know that those are factors that play an overwhelmingly important role in all kinds of different life outcomes, from your health to your success in marriage to your lifetime earnings. Uh, and those are not factors that have much to do with your uh, your zip code doesn't have much to do with the level of effort you put in or uh, your intelligence or, or other things that seem innate. And so that proposition of uh, is this a fair proposition for uh, for Americans who uh, happen to be born or raised in areas that are downwardly mobile or, or suppress people's upward mobility? Uh, that That's something that I think challenges our notion, in particular in the policymaking arena, of how we should uh, expand access to opportunity and how, how much we should try to bring opportunity to people rather than just expecting people to uh, to make it on their own. Michael, uh, you're a sociologist at NYU. Uh, when you think about the American dream and how it's viewed uh, today, uh, do you want to respond to what John has talked about in terms of how it's, uh, it can be unattainable, depending on uh, where you were born and where you live? Well, my focus actually is on uh, who your par- what your parents do for a living. And, and I've been looking at occupational mobility over the last 22 years with some new data from the General Social Survey, new data about the past, um, and, uh, and find that actually things are uh, worse off than we thought they were, and yet at the same time unchanged over the whole 22-year period. So there's a bit of a paradox there, <laughs> uh, if I might... Uh, unpack it just a little bit. Um, the idea is that um, as important as zip code is, the occupation of your parents uh, weighs heavily into that, and their fortunes uh, are no doubt affected by that zip code that John was talking about. Mm. Uh, we started the show uh, talking a little bit about uh, the recovery of of one uh, demographic, and that's Generation X uh, since the start of the Great Recession. But when we look at uh, economic mobility, is that something we need to look further back uh, than 2007 uh, to uh, talk about where we are today, uh, John. Yeah, if you look at trends in economic mobility, it, it, there's a, a, a mixed story here. Uh, in some, On some measures, economic mobility has declined because standards of living have increased so much since the beginning of the 20th century. So it's harder uh, to, to set the same pace, uh, to keep the same pace over, over, uh, of growth over a long period of time and say we're going to continue to have the same type of uh, uh, mobility over a substantially risen standard of living. Uh, but in relative terms, people uh, people also look at uh, versus your peers, uh, how likely are you to rise, not just versus your parents. Uh, and, and so it's a mixed bag across uh, as far as we have data that goes back. What's changed, I think, pretty dramatically is this question of place and, and how the country's economy, which we often talk about as a monolithic thing, uh, really does divide along geographic fault lines that, that have a tremendous impact on the way people experience the economy and their view of the national economy because they're looking out their window, not looking at national data sets. And that's something where we have a really troubling picture in, in the more recent frame of a recession and a recovery that have left a much wider gap between prosperous places and distressed places uh, than what we saw entering the recession. So we have a, a real challenge here of diverging uh, trajectories. It's not just that distressed areas are failing to keep pace. It's that in many cases, 
and this means for tens of millions of Americans, their communities are actually still in recession for all intents and purposes. They're still losing jobs. They're still losing businesses. And so uh, it's not just uh, growing at different rates. It's you have a, a backward uh, momentum for uh, tens of thousands of communities around the country. And that just st- stands in stark contrast to our understanding of today's economy being a booming one. And it is at the national level. Uh, but I think our work has tried to underscore we have to get beneath the national headlines beneath those national statistics to understand how people are actually experiencing the economy in their own backyard. Uh, This is where we live today. We're talking about the so-called American dream. My guest today, John Letiri, co-founder and president of the Economic Innovation Group, and Michael Hout, professor of sociology at New York University. You can join us too, 860-275-7266. Colleen is calling from Farmington. Colleen, go ahead. Hi. So I um, just to give you some background, I am considered a millennial. I graduated from college back in 2011. And since I've graduated, I have had part-time and full-time positions in the nonprofit sector. And what I'm finding is that as from my personal experience, I'm not sure whether I'm going to be able to move forward and have this so-called American dream. Um, I'm finding in my job search right now, I was laid off back in November. I had a, I had a job that didn't really fit um, for about a month, and now I'm back where I started. Um, I'm finding that not only is the bachelor's considered the new high school diploma, because you you can't get anywhere without having a bachelor's and in terms of different career paths, my degree is in communications. So even though I have a wide range of opportunities, it's exceedingly hard when you're up against hundreds of applicants, applicants who may have had a specific a degree in a specific field like marketing or business, something that is more um, more concrete and you can do a specific thing. Now, Colleen, uh, one of our guests, uh, Michael Howd, he's going to be talking more about uh, his study and how uh, the occupation of parents can uh, play into uh, the success of children as they grow. Uh, is that something that uh, you think impacted you at all, or is it just a wrong time in terms of graduating and trying to find a job with where the economy was at that point? I think it's more of when I graduated and trying to find a job, um, my parents, they have their own business. They've been very successful. And on my end, I'm, I'm still struggling because of the, maybe because of the major that I chose. And the economy in Connecticut is not as good as it's, as it is projected to be. We may have a 4% unemployment rate, but that doesn't, that doesn't factor in the people that have that have stopped looking for work because their unemployment benefits have have been exhausted. Well, thank you, Colleen, uh, for calling in. I wanted to have our guests respond. First, I'll go to Michael. Um, we were hearing a little bit about uh, you know why Colleen feels like her financial future is not secure. Uh, did you want to respond to what she shared with us? Well, two things. Uh, first of all, I think that I 
uh, hear what she's saying about the need for a college degree. It's it's extremely important, and indeed, that's the main mechanism by which parents influence their children's uh, subsequent success or lack thereof. Is the uh, some some parents uh, are in a position to. F- finance their uh, their kids uh, college educations and others uh, are not and and even those uh, uh, well and that that's a huge factor um, it, it was also interesting to hear her say that you know the Connecticut job market isn't uh, isn't as strong as she'd like and I, I'm, I'm eager to hear what John has to say about it because I, I love his map because it mm-hmm. goes beyond the 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 usual, you know, the coasts are strong and the middle is struggling uh, uh, typology that we use, there are actually substantial uh, zones of opportunity spread throughout the country. There are parts near the coast that are uh, uh, struggling and parts well inland uh, where there there are substantial opportunities for young people and 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 so I urge everybody to go click on uh, follow the link on your website to his map it's just I could spend all day looking at this but I have other stuff to do I usually have to pay for that kind of marketing so uh, thank you well John Latiri uh, we got to go to break soon but tell us a little bit about um, respond to what uh, Colleen had shared with us and and the idea of depending on place uh, where you see where Americans see success yeah, yeah I thought it was really interesting because we live in a time right now where uh, so much of what you hear from the private sector is we we cannot find enough workers. There just aren't enough workers to fill the jobs we have open. And yet you still do find people like Colleen who feel like they're a mismatch in the labor market. And a lot of that has to do with you know whether you're willing to uh, to leave where you are to find a better labor market. Uh, Connecticut has a, a a relatively strong baseline, so it's it's not a not a distressed area as a state, uh, but it also hasn't seen very dynamic growth since the end of the recession. Uh, so it's a little bit more of a treading water economy, which for people who are on the outside looking in can be very frustrating. Uh, and that's one of the challenges we see post Great Recession is just overall a much less dynamic economy. Uh, and I'd, I'd love to unpack that more uh, maybe after the break. But one of the features of that is much less geographic mobility, uh, which means uh, even when people are faced with uh, with relatively poor local economy, they, they aren't responding the way the Americans typically responded in previous generations where they picked up and moved. We move at roughly half the rate uh, that we did just in the 1990s. Uh, and so that's a pretty big uh, turnaround and, and one that really emphasizes if people are more stuck in place uh, than in previous generations, we really have to understand the impact of place more than we once did. And we are going to talk more about that uh, coming up here on Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. John Latiri joining us from NPR in Washington, D.C. He's co-founder and president of the Economic Innovation Group. And Michael Haupt, professor of sociology at New York University. And we want to hear from you, too. Do you still believe in the so-called American dream? You can join us, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We're focusing in on the idea of the American dream. Americans are taught that if you work hard, you can move ahead in life and often be in a better financial boat than your parents were. 
But is that still true? We want to hear from you, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter, at Where We Live. My guests today are John Letiri, co-founder and president of the Economic Innovation Group, and Michael Hout, professor of sociology at New York University. Uh, John, before the break, we were talking more about uh, this map uh, that your organization has come up with in terms of looking at economic mobility. So uh, tell us more about the factors that distinguish uh, a town or city that's more economically mobile versus one that's not. Sure. Well, the the, the map that uh, we've created is an index uh, to look at community economic well-being. So not just the poverty rate and not just individual income, uh, but a wider array of factors, education attainment, housing vacancy, change in jobs and businesses, et cetera, to try to get a, a broader proxy for what is the overall um, economic environment uh, of, of a given place. And we map uh, every zip code in the country with over 500 people. We use that data to sort zip codes uh, against that index into tiers of prosperity. And why do we do that? Uh, again, it's to get back to that question of we, ne- we need to stop thinking of the U.S. economy or any economy as monolithic and understand when you're talking about job or business growth, uh, when you're talking about income improvement, you have to ask about the distribution uh, of, of those gains. Where are they going? And so one of the striking things that we've found uh, over the course of the recovery is that, again, while at the national level, a lot of these stats look good, mm-hmm. the distribution has been in extremely concentrated in prosperous uh, and comfortable areas. So if you look by place, uh, prosperous places are generating by far uh, the most uh, jobs and businesses on net during the course of the recovery. In fact, uh, along many measures, they've generated uh, more than the rest of the country combined. So that top 20% of places uh, uh, reaping the overwhelming benefits of of the great uh, the recovery from the Great Recession. And so that has a huge impact, again, on how people uh, can access economic opportunity. And if you're in a place that's on the outside looking in, for example, the bottom 20%, where 50 million Americans live, uh, their their losses in jobs and businesses has not stopped. Uh, so their recession, you're talking about a lost decade for those Americans. Uh, and that's a truly profound thing because typically when you have a booming economy, go back to the 1990s, for example, uh, if you closed your eyes in the 1990s and put your finger on the map, you were uh, better than even odds at landing on a place that had as strong of a growth rate in jobs and businesses as the national economy as a whole. Uh, so most places reflected uh, the national picture, and that's shrunk down to just a quarter today. So as a, an economy, we're much more reliant on a narrow base of people and places to carry those national growth rates. And so when I think a lot of Americans hear about a booming economy and a robust labor market, uh, they find it hard to square with what uh, they're seeing in their own local economies, and that has a big impact on mobility. And, and it actually, our, our findings run counter to some of the uh, some of the uh, uh, traditional thinking about winning places and losing places today. For example, our, our research, when we crosswalked it with uh, an economist named Raj Chetty, who's done fantastic work uh, looking at economic mobility, uh, we found that the most powerful engines of upward mobility in this country were rural, prosperous places in the, uh, in the Great Plains and Upper Midwest. Uh, and I, I think a lot of Americans don't typically think of rural America as uh, particularly dynamic or upwardly mobile. But there are still places in this country where that's the best possible place to be. And and this gets to the point that being poor uh, in, in one area means something very different than being poor in another area. And, and it gets back to what we talked about earlier, that that's quite arbitrary, uh, that, that uh, your zip code really does have this massive impact. 
uh, even if your starting point in individual terms is the same as it would be somewhere else. Uh, so those those broader conditions matter. I think uh, this this research we're talking about now about uh, what your parents do, your occupation, it, it shows that there's environmental factors that play a huge role. So understanding that, we should use public policy uh, to really strengthen social capital and, and to incentivize the right type of healthy behavior and risk-taking that leads to more opportunity for everybody. You mentioned the term social capital, so let's talk more about that uh, because you also mentioned economist Raj Chetty's uh, research, this idea that there are places uh, in in our country, and he uses the example of Salt Lake City, uh, where there is a lot of social capital, where people who are needing help can find it, and that's how uh, you see upward mobility happening? Yeah, that's that's one, that's one key. Uh, uh, Salt Lake City and, and Utah in general you know, it seems to be one of the national leaders in in the arena of social capital, which it's actually interesting now that uh, that has become uh, a point of focus for researchers. You're actually seeing this interesting project on Capitol Hill at the Joint Economic Committee, uh, a social capital project to, to try to map and define social capital, quantify that around the country and understand what are places that are doing well on that measure and, and what are places that are struggling. Uh, but the but the impact is profound and, and it gets to this issue of uh, it's not just about the individual or even about the individual's family. It's about the surrounding circumstances. Uh, you're much better off if, you, if you're if you poor and you live in a non-segregated, uh, highly integrated, diverse area where there's a lot of two-parent uh, uh, households, for example, even if you yourself don't live in a two-parent household. Uh, so these are these are issues that we know matter, but what to do about them and, and how to factor that into policymaking and other decision-making is quite challenging. You can join our conversation on Where We Live, 860-275-7266. Sarah's calling from uh, Southeast Connecticut. Sarah, go ahead. Hi. Um, I, I just want to um, make a comment or two. Um, I'm actually um, from the – I was born in 1950. And um, I, I did move around the country um, to find the, a job that was enjoyable for me and fit in with my plans. I did not find it easy at any level because of the specification of a job. Um, I, I did things that people didn't do. Um, and then now now you have to get a certification for it. So I ended up without job opportunities, although I re-educated myself as best I could. So your description doesn't quite fit with my experience. Um, I, I was a nurse, by the way, master's level nurse. Um, and um, I found that it was extremely difficult to get ahead um, in any region. I, I worked in Kansas. I worked in uh, Sacramento. I worked in Connecticut. I worked in Massachusetts. And I worked in New Hampshire. Um, so, um, you know, I, I, I do fit the picture of more mobility, mm -hmm. but um, the economic situation in a particular state, given your your particular professional career, um, is going to be an issue no matter what state you're in. Well, thank you, uh, Sarah, for your call. Uh, John, did you want to respond? Uh, no, I, I well, except just to say that I, I think it's it's certainly true that um, there's a difference between an individual's experience uh, or or the impact. Uh, in an individual's life, something that may be totally rational at an individual level, if you multiply that on a national scale, may have negative effects and vice versa. There could be things that are positive at a national scale that present challenges for the individual. So I, I certainly hear where she's coming from. 
I wanted to bring uh, Michael Haupt back in the conversation, professor of sociology at New York University. I, I was curious about you know, the role of a higher education uh, when we think about mitigating disparities in economic mobility. What have you found in your research, uh, Michael, about how you know, earning that college degree, how that can uh, help some people, but not all people, because we hear so often about uh, the level of debt that people hold because they've gone on to higher education? Well, uh, the first thing I want to say about it is that there are few investments you can make in yourself or in your children that pay off as pay off better than a college education. But on the other hand, the um, the landscape is treacherous. The um, the public higher education generally uh, in, uh, students who avail themselves of public education leave with less debt than those who go to uh, not-for-profit private universities, and the people who have the highest debt are those who go to the for-profits. Now, sometimes that works out because they they arrange job interviews for you and so on. But for the most part, um, the really high debt that we see these days is from the uh, highly unregulated for-profit Region that or, uh, sector of the of higher education that for a while uh, the Obama administration was regulating, but the current administration has substantially rolled back those regulations, uh, and so it, it, student beware you before taking out that loan, uh, be very careful about the terms of it. Um, uh, I I also want to point out that um, the. Uh, there's a there's an important way in which higher education cancels the effect of parents uh, in the sense that if you beat the odds uh, as a as a person who grew up in a uh, in a lower class or a, a, even a working class background and 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 get that college education your parents uh, occupation is no longer a drag on your future it's 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 among those who don't have credentials that the uh, that the long hand of parents' opportunities uh, continues to influence their careers. Uh, we heard uh, John Latiri mentioning uh, a lot of the data that's out there and why uh, this should be um, used to drive public policy. Let's so let's talk about that of how uh, policy uh, can change. Again, John Latiri uh, from the Economic Innovation Group. Uh, some po- some ideas of policies that could help people become more mobile. You mentioned people aren't moving as often as they used to, maybe because they do feel stuck. At the same time, uh, we have listeners who would say there are investments uh, to help people uh, with affordable housing or to get, uh, you know, a leg up. Um, I mean, how much more can uh, government invest to help uh, these individuals? And maybe is the investment uh, going in the wrong uh, direction? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And, and this is one of those things we have to say at the outset, there's no single cause and no single cure uh, to, for these broader challenges. Uh, but even before we think about what type of public sector investments, and there certainly are some in the education and workforce space that make a lot of sense, before we get to, to that point, you want to also ask, what have we allowed to creep in that we should stop doing or stop allowing? Uh, there are a couple of things that have changed pretty dramatically in the last few decades that disproportionately harm lower-income and middle-income Americans uh, and disproportionately advantage concentrated power and interest in the private sector. And so what am I talking about here? Occupational licensing being one, where we've seen a, uh, a, a multifold increase in the number of professions nationwide that require a license to do work. And it's this 
uh, terrible patchwork from one state to another. In most cases, the license doesn't transfer. So if you move to another state, you have to go through the whole process again. Uh, every bit of research we have says it doesn't actually protect consumers or bring any kind of consumer benefit or safety. Uh, it has deep negative ramifications for people's uh, economic and geographic mobility and uh, costs more to consumers. Uh, so it, it's kind of uh, poisonous across the board. One thing it does very well, though, is protect incumbents from competition. And that's really, in many ways, what it's designed to do, is to uh, create protected industries where the current occupants get to decide who, who competes with them and who doesn't. And that idea of competition and allowing marketplaces to work as they're intended uh, is is really important because we have to start with a level playing field. You can't expect people to have uh, to take care of themselves and, and, and uh, work hard and play by the rules and then pull out the planks of economic stability and opportunity from underneath them. And you, you see this in the no-poach arena where major fast food franchises are some of the worst offenders. Uh, they, they have collusionary behavior among employers that say, we won't hire your exiting staffer if you don't hire ours. And so for this, again, disproportionately affects low-income workers who are just trying to get their first foot on the ladder of opportunity. That uh, keeps them from being able to bid up their wages. Uh, same thing with non-competes, which also have a very harmful effect on entrepreneurship. So the more that we concentrate power in a few hands and the more that we stifle healthy competition in a healthy marketplace, uh, folks that are college educated, have an advanced degree, who live in dynamic areas, they're going to be fine. Uh, but it's low and middle income workers and their kids that are going to be harmed by this. And then we have to pay more on the back end to try to uh, compensate for the negative symptoms of that. So I think a lot of what we should be focused on in the policy arena is what to stop doing. And so much of it is about injecting healthy competition and, and, and transparent marketplaces rather than allowing for essentially the game to be rigged. And this is where I thought in the 2016 election, we, we started to hear a lot about this rigging of the system. And while I would personally take issue with some of the solutions that were uh, that were put forward as as to what to do about it, I think the premise is right, that for many Americans, that idea that the economy is a bit rigged against you, especially if you don't have a college or advanced degree, uh, rings true because that's their experience in these areas that I'm talking about. Uh, earlier, you'd mentioned about the importance of, of where people live. Uh, another uh, place that gets uh, criticism in terms of assistance is um, many Americans need housing assistance, but to be able to pay your rent and to stay in the same low-income neighborhood without uh, the opportunity uh, to move uh, to a mixed-income neighborhood, uh, that, that lessens your chances uh, of you know being able uh, to pull yourself up um, and have a better job and a stronger income to support your family. Well, that's one of the most uh, egregious examples of how uh, places that are prosperous have used uh, zoning and land use regulation to to create gated communities, essentially, where it's very hard for low and middle income people to move in. It's very hard in many cases for low and middle income people to stay uh, because uh, because of restrictive zoning and the inability, the unwillingness to build enough uh, housing to meet a diverse array of, uh, of needs. Uh, and we see this so clearly in our research that many of the most prosperous and equal places are prosperous and equal. The equal part is because they've done a good job at creating an enclave mm -hmm. and making sure that uh, lower middle income people can't come in. Uh, we've got to do better on that. And that, that's really a local uh, issue. It's, uh, there's, there's only so many levers the federal government can pull. Everything I mentioned, by the way, everything I mentioned is primarily a, a state and local uh, policy issue. And if we really wanted to expand opportunity, we would take those issues seriously. And, uh, and I think, uh, frankly, a little sunlight uh, does wonders here. Uh, in the no poach arena, 
once uh, an economist named Alan Kruger did some research on this and shined a spotlight on the on the collusionary behavior, McDonald's and many other major franchises said, oh, we're going to stop doing it. In fact, they claimed to not even know they were doing it <laughs> at the corporate leadership level. Uh, so it didn't take a piece of legislation. It took some research and uh, and some publicity to show just how egregious and in, in how many ways we actually silently harm the prospects uh, and the stability of, of people who don't have a lot of economic power in our, in our communities. We're going to have to leave it there. I want to thank John Letiri again, co-founder and president of the Economic Innovation Group, joining us today from NPR's headquarters in Washington, D.C. John, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Also, Michael Hout, professor of sociology at New York University. Again, Michael, we're going to tweet out a link to uh, your research. Michael, thanks for your time. Thank you, you, Lucy. Goodbye. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, the idea of the American dream is something many in immigrant communities believe in strongly. We're going to find out more about a community in the western side of the state uh, that is looking to highlight the contributions of their immigrant residents. This is Where We Live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up tomorrow, Hartford has a new top cop. Joining us tomorrow in studio and on Facebook Live is Hartford's police chief, David Rosado. And you can join us, too. That's coming up tomorrow on Where We Live. Now, opportunity has led millions of Americans to move to the U.S., but as we discussed earlier, achieving the so-called American dream depends on a lot of factors, not just on the idea of working hard. Still, our nation's success is due in part to the contributions of immigrants. A nonprofit in Danbury, Connecticut, has worked to highlight the lives of local immigrants in an annual awards ceremony. For more, joining us now is Emanuela Palmares, vice president of the New American Dream Foundation. Emanuela, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Lucy. Uh, we don't have a lot of time, but tell us a little bit about your family uh, roots, because you moved here uh, with your family from Brazil as a child. I did. I did. We came chasing my my parents' American dream in a way, and I believe that's why it's one of this country's greatest export. I think the concept of the American dream really starts at the hearts of all the people that have come before us chasing something mystical about this country. So I don't think it's as concrete as things that happened directly after the Great Depression, but it's really uh, a concept that's always been here. And we came from Brazil with nothing when I was around 10 years old. I've been here for 25 years, and we came from depending on a lot of the services um, that offered in our community from getting bread at the Salvation Army and sleeping on mattresses in our first apartment and not having beds to now setting up a foundation to help other people define and achieve their American dream. You're vice president of the New American Dream Foundation. Why the New American Dream versus the typical American Dream? It's it's this conversation that you're having today. That's why for us is so interesting. We believe that the American Dream, as people know it, is this idea that is tied down to an economic period, an economic growth, and access to physical material things. Where we wanted to put the new in because we felt that immigrants kind of bring this fresh new perspective to what is the American dream. Um, when we talk about education, does it mean higher education or does it mean just achieving getting a certificate for a trade or learning a language? When we talk about, you know, feeling happy, does it include feeling healthy? Does it include just having access to feeling like you're a whole person? Um, and the perspective of immigrants is what makes that new. And I think that's one of the greatest things that immigrants bring into you, literally the physical and their emotional baggage, is that, you know, ask a Brazilian about corruption. 
comparison to the times we're living now. Ask a Venezuelan about the economy compared to the times that we're living now. So we always look at this country with a sprinkle of admiration, no matter how bad things are, because we know better. We know that things could always get worse. Mm. So when we were talking about uh, the American dream and whether it's fading or if it was always a myth to immigrants, the new American dream, it just it means something completely different because they're uh, more optimistic about the future and what they're able to bring in and help support their family. It's it's renewed with every person that comes in because you're bringing your own definition of the American dream. And I think that for most immigrants in their immigration journey, in their status, the ultimate American dream is to become an American. And I think there's something very poetic and beautiful about that, that um, it's not attached to a house, it's not attached to a diploma, it's not attached to uh, stats, it's attached just to be a part of this place could be the biggest dream of them all. And for us at our foundation, we just want to help guide people, define that dream, but also let them know along their way that we see them and that we value this new definition that they're bringing to the table. Mm. When we look at uh, immigration policy in this country and the rhetoric that's continued now uh, through uh, several different uh, presidents, mm-hmm. uh, uh, when immigrants uh, hear that rhetoric, uh, is their optimism uh, less full, so to speak? No, because the risk was too great, right? So when you give up everything you have and you know to come to this country, it takes a lot more than sticks and stones to deter um, your passion and your goal. And most immigrants come with a very personal goal of achieving something for their own kind, their family, their children, um, either back home or with them. So it's what we're seeking It's more important than what people think about us. And in that process, we teach the lessons of what's really important in life, which is really have a sense of community, um, be a part of something you love and fight for the people you love and work hard. And we think that's really the final recipe to achieve this thing that we call the American dream that every family gets to redefine. And we know for a fact in our foundation that we look at it, it's that some people are waiting for a 2050 census to feel this change. Um, we are already living the redefinition of all these American values through the eyes of the immigrant community. And I think that it, overall, when all is said and done and the dust has settled, they will see that this is a new, vibrant wave of Americans. They're just as passionate and patriotic as the one that came before them. Mm. We did hear, have a caller who called in earlier and said there are two American dreams, the new American dream and the American dream. He believes both are under attack. Do you agree? Um I don't agree. I don't agree because I literally live and work with the immigrant community for 20 years. And like I said, it takes a lot more to deter us. Um, I get to, I'm very fortunate. It took us 15 years to become American citizens. But when I did get to go back, the insight that I got, because I left when I was 10 years old, into my dad's village and the prospect of him never leaving that place, or actually the first plane that he ever got into was to come straight here. There's something that you can't even describe in words when you talk about the opportunity and the promise they're chasing of a land of just really stories of success. Um, So I think it needs to be a lot bigger than that. And I think that what Americans can learn from the immigrant community is that you have been blessed. And at your worst, you're still the best. Mm. 
I mentioned you're with the New American Dream Foundation, and for several years you've been uh, honoring local immigrants. Tell us, tell us why, and who are you honoring this Saturday? You know, my mother is the visionary behind this um, event. She's the president. That's why I'm the vice president. <laughs> we still have a very, um, you know, classic family dynamic from first immigrants coming in. So she's always the boss. And um, mom wanted to recognize other people who were in the same part of their journey that we were when we got here, but give them an extra push that she feel that she didn't have. Um, not only a keep going from the immigrant community, from from the Native American-born community who was who was there, for them to understand that they may disagree in how people got here, but the one thing they have in common is a leap, deep love and devotion for this country. So we honor people that have gotten here a couple of months ago or um, three, four, six generations ago with a Lifetime Achievement Award, and we connect those stories by just saying it may look different, but it's the same story. And people are coming here because there's something about this country that's special that enables them to achieve their full potential. And it's up to each one of us to define that and um, make that our goal. We're going to have more information on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live, about uh, the people who will be honored uh, this weekend, uh, more about their biographies. But do you just want to quickly tell us uh, the names of those up for awards? Absolutely. One of our honorees is our veteran of the year. We always um, look for identifying our community, a member of our community who joined the military before becoming an American citizen to show that's the ultimate sacrifice and the ultimate show of passion for our country, and that's Officer Hector Rodriguez, who also happens to be one of our Danbury police officers. Um, And we also have our Students of the Year and our Person of the Year. Our Lifetime Achievement Award winner is Mr. Hurdy, and his story is beautiful. He came to America chasing the love of his life after he met a redheaded American girl in a dance in Ireland. And more on the uh, people that are being honored on our website again. I want to thank Emmanuel Palmeiras, Vice President of the New American Dream Foundation. Also a great newspaper over on the western side of the state, uh, Tribuna, which you and your mother are part of. So we thank you for coming in today to talk with us. My pleasure. Thank you. Today's show produced by senior producer Lydia Brown. Uh, special thanks to Carmen Baskoff, Kion Wolf, and uh, intern Philip Geolopsis. Geolopsis. <laughs> I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening. <laughs>